Coming up on the Dilbram All-Rounder podcast, the season finale, episode 21, titled The Game Played in Heaven. No, it's not cricket. It's not football. It's rugby, rugby union. One of the best matches I've seen in my life, the 2000 Bledisloe Cup between Australia and New Zealand. Before we get into it, I just wanted to say a big thank you to all my listeners, um, anyone new and old, anyone who's perhaps just listened to one episode, maybe just listened to the trailer or stuck through and listened to all the episodes. I really appreciate it. I've done 21 episodes produced by me, been a lot of hard work, but I've enjoyed doing it because I've received a lot of good feedback from all of you. So this will be the final episode and then we're going to take a break, recharge, and then I'm coming back better than ever, probably starting my first episode for the next season on the 1st of February, which is conveniently a Thursday, which is when I like to upload these podcasts. So very much appreciate all the listens, all the support. I'm going to keep producing great content for you all, and I hope you can stay listening and be loyal fans. So thanks again. Welcome to the Dilip Ram All-Rounder podcast. It's the 30th of November. It is approximately 7.45 p.m. And my guest today is Andrew Buckhorn, Buckster. Andrew, welcome to the show. Uh, Dilip, thank you for having me. You, I've, I haven't received this complaint, but I've been told there were a lot of Indians on my podcast, <laughs> so it's good to have some diversity. Uh, I'm an honorary one. <laughs> you are, you are. Um, Andrew, I brought you on today so that we could talk a little bit of rugby. We haven't had a rugby episode yet. Yep, yep. And we both went to Trinity Grammar. The focus was rugby at that school, but we neither of us played. Did you play? I played a little bit for three years. Okay. I was terrible my first year, but improved gradually. Very good. So we're going to be talking about the 2000 Bledisloe match between Australia, the Wallabies, and New Zealand, the All Blacks. It's regarded by some quote as the match that was played in heaven one of the great games played of all time and i want to get into that in one of our segments but that's what we're going to be talking about but before we do that buck on in another life if you had a choice and you could have been a superstar athlete what would you have picked it's a hard decision because i like you have always loved sport growing up been obsessed and I, th I first think about something Nick Kyrgios said, which was, it gets a bit lonely out there for some of the sports like tennis, you know, swimming, sprinting. So I think it would be a team sport and one where it doesn't take the toll on your body like rugby does. So I think I would have done professional cricket. Professional cricket, right. I mean, if you can look like Shane Warne and be a professional athlete, you know, that's the sport for me. I just remember you in year seven or year eight, didn't you get hit by a ball? I did. I got hit by a ball in the face. 
Which is not a good sign for being a professional cricketer. You didn't notice the ball coming? No, it was actually... Uh... No, it was pretty hard. I mean, the cricket nets were here and you I think you were in the middle of the park. Oh, I was in my own world. And there were 50 players hitting from the nets. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was difficult. So I do have some sympathy. But that's my, that's my one memory of you on the cricket field and it wasn't a good memory. <laughs> um, do you know, someone called heads and maybe it was you and that actually, <laughs> that actually got me into trouble because I put my head up to see, whoa... Where's the ball? It hit me in the nose. I feel really bad because I remember you got hit and you were crying. <laughs> and there were a lot of people like just Did laughing. I, I don't remember that. You were crying. You oh, were crying. No. I mean, you got hit by a leather ball. It was, it was pretty bad. Oh, in my mind, I just shrugged it off. You know, oh, that was tough. <laughs> I guess not. Who's the goat? Who's the goat of cricket or sport generally? I just said, who's the goat? Who's the goat? Look, of sport generally? Actually, it might be the one and the same answer. Because people bring up, say, Michael Jordan, people like that. But Michael Jordan might not even be the best basketball player ever, depending who you ask. Mm. But in cricket, there's no question it's Don Bradman. He's so far ahead of everyone else. And I think when you're that far ahead of everyone else in your own sport, in a way, that's a sign that you're the best in sport generally. If you asked an American, they'd say who? Well, that's true. I mean, that's a very Australian-centric viewpoint, I it suppose. probably applies to Canadians as well, Buckhorn. Is you're originally from Canada. I am, or well, half Canadian, yep. So to some extent, I'm surprised your answer wasn't Wayne Gretzky. But <laughs> Don Bradman, the other person who's... So we've done 18... You, we've done 17 or 18 episodes. Yep. There's only been one other person who said Don Bradman. was Virosh. Is that right? So you've done uh, well. Great minds think alike, eh? Indeed. Um, no, good answer. So... I brought you here to talk about rugby. Um, it is a very interesting sport. We haven't talked about it yet. There's a lot to unpack in rugby, and I don't think we're yep, going to be able yep. to do justice to the history of rugby union and the issues in rugby union in, in this episode, but we're going to try and focus on one of the bright moments in rugby history, this match. Um, and in in doing so it's where it i sort of i want to look back a little bit at the context of rugby and i guess for us andrew rugby was the be all and end all at school um, oh it was they promoted that thing more than any other sport at school it was you know it was the one sport that if you played at the top level at at a private school um, the whole school was uh, basically forced to watch you and support yeah. you um, in during your competition games. And the headmaster's dream when we were at school, uh, headmaster was Milton Chewis, and I suppose all other headmasters before him, the dream was to win a rugby championship, a rugby trophy, the CAS trophy um, at our school. I don't think we won it when we were from year 7 to 12 at Trinity. I honestly have no idea. I do not remember whether we yeah. won it or not, but they... The reason I know we didn't win it was because we didn't get a day off school. And I would have okay. remembered. Um, as I've said before... That's a if good you, point. If you, won, if you won the championship, you'd get a day off, particularly if it was rugby. If it was tennis, nobody cared. Um, but one of the things with rugby in Australia particularly, and I think in other parts of the world that play rugby buck on, is this chasm between... Or this divide between public and private schools yeah. and how rugby's played. And I think we can probably cover it when we talk about embrace debate and some of the issues in rugby. But I found growing up that that was one of the divides was that if you didn't go to a private school, you almost looked at rugby as this elitist sport that you weren't interested in. Yeah, it's a strange thing in how rugby league and rugby union have separated 
you know, rugby league, at least in Sydney, is for the western suburbs and rugby union is for the eastern private schools. And there's no particular reason why that should be the case and remain the way it is, but it still is that way today. And in a way, that's one of the big problems I think rugby union has going forward. It's, I, I agree. Um, but for us, we grew up, we're both 90s boys. You were born in 1991. 91. I'm a 90s boy. And I'd say we grew up in the golden era of, oh, of, rugby? of rugby. Oh, yeah. Usually as a, as a kid, you have your initial memories probably as a seven, eight-year-old. Um, now we're both in our 30s, early 30s, which is good. But um, you grow up with those memories. And I think the Wallabies, as we call the Australian Rugby League, uh, Australian Rugby Union team, their heyday, their prominence was the late 90s, early 2000s. And that's the era in which, or that's the game which we're focused on. We're focused on a game that's in the middle of that dominant era. And probably maybe that's why we have these um, everlasting memories of rugby union that perhaps the younger generation doesn't hold on to. Yeah, it was a golden era of not just Australian rugby, but Australian sport generally. Mm. I mean, 99, we win the Cricket World Cup, we win the Rugby World Cup. And then coming into this game, you know, you see, you'll see in the game, you've got the 100 metre track on the outside, which has yeah. been set up for the Sydney Olympics. Again, a great moment for Australia, you know. Um, and rugby at that time, and I'd forgotten a little bit about this until I went back and rewatched, but we'd won the Bledisloe Cup coming into that series the previous two times. We'd that, won in 98 and 99. Yeah, which is unbelievable to think about now, where I don't think we've won for about 20 years. Unheard of nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So it truly was, particularly for rugby in Australia, a golden time. Yeah, as you say, uh, Australian rugby, they'd won a World Cup in 91. Yep. I don't know who the captain was. It might have, Was it Nick Farr Jones or it was, it was you know. I don't know who the captain was, but I think Campisi was the star. Campisi, yes. And Ella, I think. Yeah, Mark and, Ella. And, yeah. and Nick Farr Jones, among others. Uh, I think John Eels was in that team. Was he as really? Well. Yes, because wow. it was his, the, in, because then in 99, John Eels led the squad. Right, right. And Australia had won the Rugby World Cup for the second time. And so then we come to 2000, which is when this game was played, as you say, the era in which it was just prior to the Olympics yep. in Sydney. And Australia is this juggernaut of rugby, having yeah. won a World Cup, held on to the Bledisloe Cups. And I think that probably set up the stage for what was to be one of the most exciting matches of all time. Now, what I like to do, Buckhorn, is also look at what was happening in 2000. Now, I did an Olympics episode, and I'm expecting that you're going to be listening to it after this when you drive back home. Of course. Um, but so I covered what was happening in 2000 at that time, but I'm going to look at it from a rugby context in 2000, we had a situation where the shoot shield was going on I believe and so. my, and my Eastwood, the Woodies won it in 1999. So I used to live in Eastwood. So the Woodies were this great team from where I was. They were playing at TJ Milner Oval. They had won the shoot shield. The Crusaders, Canterbury Crusaders were dominating the super 12s. Yep. Yep. In, that I remember. In rugby union. They'd won in 99 and also won in 2000. And Rod McQueen was the coach of the Wallabies. So that's sort of setting the stage for what's happening in the, in, in the world of rugby from a Southern Hemisphere standpoint. And probably in terms of what was going on and what was the build up to that game, probably can we, we can do it in hot seat. So let's do hot seat. First thing I had, Buckhorn, was New Zealand rugby. And I had it as a the whole team as on the hot seat because... As you said, 
two years earlier, the Wallabies had taken the Bledisloe Cup off the All Blacks and they just retained the trophy for the last two years. Now, that might not be surprising at the time, but it's surprising now when we look at the dominant, uh, the dominance that the New Zealand team has shown oh, for so long. Now it's unbelievable. It's even weirder when you think about they had Jonah Lomu throughout that period. Yeah, they did. And so, the, you know, the, the All Blacks were coming off a Rugby World Cup semi-final exit in 99. Against to France. France. Uh, Lomu, also think, a great game, actually. Oh, fantastic. And we can probably see if it's... Some people might have said it's one of the greatest. Future episode, eh? Yeah, future episode for that one. Um, and they were coming off a disappointing World Cup exit. And I think the New Zealand public, which we know... Their focus in all sports is rugby. You're, you're, I think, particularly in 99, 2000, you were born in New Zealand. You had to have a rugby, rugby ball in your hands as a baby. Yep, and yep. your priority was, can you make the All Blacks? Um, and you just wanted to support rugby. And I think that was why they were, there was a lot of perhaps tension in the New Zealand team that they weren't achieving the, the great heights that they had set out for. Well, I think every other sport was secondary and there's nothing a New Zealander likes doing more than beating an Australian. So to lose a Bledisloe two or three years running is uh, devastating, I imagine. And so this was probably, I think this was the first game in that Tri-Nations tournament, uh, the tournament between South Africa, Australia I and New Zealand. that's right. Um, so New Zealand was the one on the hot seat. The second thing I had on the hot seat was crowds. And the reason it's, it's almost not a hot seat, but it was a... Australian rugby crowds were peaking at that time. Yeah, they were huge. And added to that was the fact that they were playing at uh, Olympic Olympic Park Stadium, which had, I think at the time, because it was catered for the athletics and the Sydney Olympics, the stadium was actually holding up to 109,000 people. Yeah, what's different about it from today is uh, the south and north end of the stadium, there were these um, extended banks that went up high that they since removed in the years subsequent to the uh, Olympics. And That's why I don't see crowds like that anymore. Yeah, you can't. I think the the current ANZ or if we call it Homebush Stadium holds, I think, 81,000 now. About that. Yeah, I think it's yeah. 83 maybe. And it, it's, I, I, don't, I don't love the stadium now, but um, yeah. I think when it had 109,000, it almost felt like a, just, I don't know, it... it it was it a Colosseum. Yeah, it did. It, it felt like a Colosseum and I'm surprised they got rid of it, but perhaps there were financial reasons why they you would remove 30,000 seats. But so crowds are on the hot seat because the expectation was, was that this would be the highest attended rugby game of all time. And what we forget is in 99, Australia and New Zealand played at that same stadium. They had 107,000 people yep. there. So that was the record to beat. It was a, a record to beat. And for a country that's our population at that time was, let's assume it was 25 million. Yep. To have uh, 107,000 people attend a game and then to expect that to be broken the next year, the game we're talking about, it got 109,000. Yeah, it shows how popular rugby was at the time because today when you have a Bledisloe Cup game at, at you know, I think it's called Allianz Stadium now. Yeah. You know, they normally do sell it out or come close to it, but it's not a guarantee. No, and it's 40,000. Yeah, or the Allianz thing is 80. Oh, you're talking about uh, yeah, Ed the Homebush. Homebush one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, another sign is the Waratahs. See, in yeah. that era in 2000, I remember going to lots of Waratahs games because my dad was a tragic. Is he and, still a tragic? Oh, yeah, still. Yeah. But he's as frustrated with you know as anyone with uh, Australian rugby and what's going on. 
But I remember during that time period in the 2000s, I mean, you would easily get crowds 30,000 plus regularly. That's, now yeah. you'll get those sometimes, but nowhere near as frequent. No. Uh, it's a very good point on sort of at, like maybe it was at that time Super Rugby was perhaps more important. Super Rugby, well, I think in in our state, New South Wales, yes. Yeah. And uh, the Brumbies were, were a juggernaut. Brumbies were the good then, yeah. yeah. Waratahs hadn't won anything yet, but no. uh, Brumbies were very good then. Um, yeah, no, fair point. Third thing I had, I just had wingers. And the reason I had wingers was Jonah Loma at the time was, Amazing. The, was the global icon of yep. the sport. So on the hot seat were any were all Australian wingers. I think, yep. was Joe Roth a winger? Yeah, Joe Roth was a winger, yep. yeah. So I think at that time... The, the one name that was probably universal across the rugby world was Jonah. Um, yeah. And he was wrecking havoc, scoring tries left, right, and center. I think people had started to realize that his kidney issues were, were, were going to um, somewhat unsettle him and play a part in his future. I think that was around the time. He'd lived with it for a long time, but I think it then had become somewhat of a new story and pe- the wider public was getting to know what the issues were. But regardless, he was still a juggernaut that was impossible to stop. So wingers were on the hot seat. Yep, yep. Yeah, I think people knew at the time there were some issues there. But when he showed up and could play, oh, he was still devastating. I know. Tremendous to watch. Have I missed anything in hot seat? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah. That's the main points. Love it. So let's get into top five moments right after this. Two and a half minutes to go. Australia by one point. Alatini, Iremia. Sandwiched in midfield. Kelleher. Randall and Lomu. Can he do it? Larkham. Lomu has won the game surely for New Zealand. This has been a magnificent comeback by the All Blacks after all the lost. And it's that man, Jonah Lomu. The human juggernaut. Top five moments, buck on. Um, there's a lot of moments in this game. Oh, this game, you could do a top 20 list easy. You could do a top 20 list. It's it it's a game that it's available on YouTube. I mean, yep. I don't know if I should be promoting YouTube, but <laughs> I sort of have to because they don't show this game enough on tele. Like, they don't show it as a replay on TV anymore. No, I don't know if you could find it on Stan Sport or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you, you got to pay $20 a month for Stan Sport <laughs> just to watch that game. So it's on YouTube. There's also an extended highlights on YouTube. So there's plenty of plenty of highlights for you if you want to watch this game, and I really suggest you do. Um, I've, got, I've got a few. So what I've done is I had... Look, I had six, so I'm going to give one okay. honourable mention. The first honourable mention, and we might spend a bit of time on this because I want to go through a list with you, but it's the honourable mention is the Harker. Oh, I love the Harker. It was a fantastic Harker led by New Zealand's Tane Randell. Yep, yep. And at that time, we're talking 2000s, so New Roy Zealand... number eight. They did. He was, he was. Um, and... New Zealand at that time had the one harker. Now, nowadays we, we watch and we see that they utilize two different harkers and it depends on the game and the opposition. But uh, the Kamate Haka, led by Randall, I thought it really set the scene and probably it was, it, it was really, it had this greater emphasis probably because the crowd was larger. 
Yes. And I think they do a good job with having some mics in and around the middle of the arena to ensure that everyone can hear it and yep. the sound yep. really, you can really hear it across the stadium. So I thought that was just one of those moments that I would say in any rugby game that involves New Zealand, you always have the Haka up there, something that's must-watch TV. Oh, the Haka, I mean, it's unbeatable. Uh, I personally prefer the newer one, the Kapa Opanga, rather than the Kamate, but, you know, to each their own. I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think even the New Zealand players seem to prefer it because they utilise it a lot more. They seem to do more. it a lot more now, yeah. Um, and it sort of got me thinking um, because... So our school, where we went, we had our own sort of war cry. It was the ringer pakia. We won't yeah, do it. Yeah. We won't do it here. But the, oh, the, come on, do it. <laughs> the the slight difference was that that haka or war cry, you would do it at the end of a game, and you would do it in front of your own school. So it was a war cry to to sort of uh, get your school behind you. Yep. Whereas this uh, New Zealand. Uh, Harker is done obviously in front of the opposition, but it got me thinking of a list, my favorite Harkers of all time. And I've got a few. Um, one good thing about a Harker is everyone loves it. And I think it's, it's, it's great that they respect that tradition and that the rugby world and the rugby community has allowed it to continue throughout these years. Yeah. And when you watch it in the early years, it's far less uh, intimidating. Yeah. If you watch this or the eighties versions, now it's uh it's a very professional outfit you know when they perform that thing it's very scary to watch oh 100 percent entertaining so i've got my my top five i've got a top five within a top five but my top five i've got uh tana umanga's uh kapao pango the first time it was ever done against south africa against south africa i know that one that's good oh it's spine tingling it's (laughs) If you just watch him, he, he, you see true pain and yeah, anguish yeah. in his face, in his actions. It's a harker that you'll never forget. It's the first time they did it. So clearly, I think they were they were just getting into it. So Tana is fantastic, but the rest of the team is... It's a, <laughs> it's a very different, it's a slower harker because they're really getting into the rhythm of it. And I feel like every now and then in that one, you can see them looking around each other just to check yeah. that they're all staying together. As you together. say, it's the first time they were Yeah, doing first it. time, so right? We've we got to cut them some slack. I thought Tane Randell, anytime he led the Haka, I loved it. He had a voice that just, it, it reverberated around a stadium. So he was, to me, a fantastic Haka leader. He was good, but I preferred Umanga. Yeah, Tana was, yeah. I, I mean, mean, that one against South Africa, there's a moment when he's tearing at his chest yes. and screaming looking at the sky. Yeah. Think, oh my God. I, I think, out of respect, I would love to understand what the words mean as well. Yeah. Um, I think I w- Brian Habana wants to know too. Yeah. He, he was looking around in that moment going, oh my God. They were, they, the, the opposition often looked a little frightened <laughs> when, when you see it because they will, the camera will focus on them. But it'd be lovely. I think I should do some uh, research into understanding what the words are because often we watch it for the theatre and the yep. spectacle because we're, we're not from New Zealand. So we watch it purely from an impartial perspective. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... There's a far deeper meaning. Exactly, it, yeah. which is why they perform it. So I've got three others quickly. I had... You might not know this one. It's Hosea Gia. He was a winger for New Zealand. His brother's with Rick, Rico Gia. Yeah, okay, yep, yep. Um, he led a Haka in 2010 against the Welsh at Millennium Stadium. It's 
you'll find it on YouTube. You gotta you gotta really do a deep dive. Yeah, okay. I, I was doing deep dives. I think so I've seen that one. I think when I'm at home sometimes yeah. uh, watching TV with Joe, and then um, I'll just go on YouTube on the TV and type in Harkers. She's like, "What are you doing? Well, I just want to see some Harkers. Get you know, get and she's motivated. Like, not again, <laughs> not, a, not again. So I think I, I watched that one. And the other two I had, I had Piri Weepu. Oh, uh, Piri, yeah. His Harker in 2011, the Rugby World Cup, rugby World Cup yeah, final. Yeah, that's tremendous. Fantastic. And Aaron Smith, it was a recent one. It was when New Zealand came to the MCG in earlier this year. They played the um, Wallabies. It was, a, it was a great game. It was a sellout, actually, at the MCG. I think it was around 90,000 really? people at the, at the MCG. You'd never know that Melbourne supported rugby. No, yeah, I'm 90,000. Fantastic Harker really set the scene. So that's just, I thought we'll do a mini list within a list. Um, that's a pretty good list. I mean, I would put Periwipu 2011 at the top. Interesting. And I'd probably put Tano Munga's debut of the Cup of Hunger second. But it's a good list nonetheless. And we're, we're just ranking it from a pure our enjoyment of, of the Harker. That's how, that's how we rank it. That's how I'm ranking it. That's an honorable mention. Number five, Buckhorn. And I've almost done this in a chronological fashion because the game almost elevated each time. And yes, so my f- fifth moment was actually the second try. It was New Zealand a seven up. They've, they've scored a first try. Tana Umang has run through off the break. He's scored. They're seven zero. And it's Jonah Lomu makes a rampaging run on the left. Yep. He beats three or four tackles. I think he beats Joe Roth and Latham. He charges past all of them and then sets up Alatini for yep. a try to take them 14 up. At that at that point, you almost think, what what's happened? It's two minutes have gone. <laughs> Australia's just finished singing Waltzing Matilda. Yeah. And the the whole crowd, you're thinking, oh, we've got a world-class, 109,000, we're playing the Wallabies. And to be 14 nil up, I thought it was just, a, it, was, it was a moment that you won't forget. Oh, it was a crazy moment. And... In a way, it's a good segue because the, I think that waltzing Matilda started at the end of the Haka. Yeah. Teams always wondered, like, how do we deal with the Haka? What do we do? <laughs> and there was a period where I think Australia's response was to start waltzing Matilda straight away. So I don't even think we'd finished doing waltzing Matilda post Haka. And now they're two tries up. Mm. And, you know, again, just seeing Jonah Lomu tear down that left flank, just an unstoppable juggernaut. And of all people, Gregan stops him. But not on that one. He, well, he, well, he, tackled he does. Him on he that does. One. Actually, good point. He does. And I mean, a I don't sign know of how, things to come. I mean, Lomu obviously was looking for a pass. Yep. But, you know, if someone had been covering Alatini, you know, maybe that we would have had two iconic Gregan tackles in the one game, but, you know, it's not how it worked out. But yeah, to be down 14 nil two mm. minutes into a game, you've just silenced the biggest rugby crowd in all time. No doubt that it was 14 nil. And then it sort of leans to my number four moment. But just getting to there, we, we have another try from New Zealand. So we've got... Plenty of tries to talk about in this got, game. Yeah, you've got, you got five minutes. You're five minutes down. It's 21, 21 down. Yep. New Zealand, 21 up. And my number f- uh, four moment is 
you picked it and you foreshadowed it. It's Gregan's try-saving tackle. Yeah. Now, in another universe, if the Wallabies win this game, you might look back and you might say that that's the tackle of the century. Yeah. <laughs> you got to set it up. Jonah Lomu, it's 20, 21 up. But yeah, 21 zero up. He makes, they make another break on the left. They get the ball to Lomu. I think the New Zealand strategy was, let's just make sure Lomu's there. Yep. And get him the ball with space and then just let him do his work. Yeah, and Wallabies to me, they looked like they were playing sort of an up and in defense, hoping mm. to cut off a pass to Lomu. Yep. Uh, maybe in the hope that, or in the understanding that if it actually gets to Lomu, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We, have to, we just have to try and keep him out, you know, keep the ball out of his hands. But if he gets it, well, pray, you know. Yeah, they were rushing up very quickly. I think to they were try rushing and, up hard. And, yeah. Trying to close down that outside center before we could offload a pass to Lomu. I think that's what they were doing. Which is what the South Africans did very well to Lomu. Um, and we, it's, it's a stat that probably he will not look favorably much favorably upon which is he never scored a try against South Africa Jonah Lomu is that right he never scored a try against South Africa I did not know that that's sort of a more of a segue but going back to this at 21 up England can't say the same no no I I remember listening to one of the English commentators when I think Lomu scored two or three tries and it was like fee fi fo fum I smell (laughs) the something of an Englishman and it was like like he's a giant a a gentle giant Yeah. yeah but that he makes the break and then that tackle by Gregan, you, you have to really put into perspective. Lomu is this six foot four, I'm <laughs> going to say 125 kilos. Oh, easy at that point. But a, but a guy that can run 100 or used to be able to run 100 in 10.5, 11 seconds. Yep. This guy was an athlete. He, he was a Ironman. And for George Gregan, this diminutive figure who was yep. a scrum half for the Wallabies. Could not have weighed more than 80 kilo. No, but... It, it What it showed is it showed the value in tackle technique and it showed the value in bravery, I think. Just yeah, saying, both those things. look, I'm the last man here. I've just got to try my best. And that try-saving tackle, it's unbelievable because it actually resulted in a loss of possession as well because Lomu doesn't, yes. is not able to get the ball off. Um, I think they knock it on. And yes, they get three more points afterwards, but it was just a sign that the Wallabies had said, okay, enough's enough. We've yep. got to really start turning the tide here. Yeah, and I mean, if he doesn't make that tackle, I mean, 21-0 is bad. 28-0 or 26-0 is catastrophic, right? It's game over. Yeah, I mean, as it was, the tackle was made. The technique, I mean, it worked for Gregan because he pulled it off multiple times. He but bear hugs him. Well, he sort of grabs the, <laughs> yeah. the fender arm and a bit of a hug. It's, it's not how they teach you it in school. It's- but it obviously worked for Gregan because he pulled it off several times you know in the nba how they used to adopt the hacker shack yes where it's there was a different set of rules for shaquille o'neal yep yep Uh, you almost feel as if there was a different set of rules that the referee would apply when you're trying to tackle lomu right right. so you could just probably do whatever you wanted on him because the argument was hey he's too big we've got to be able to stop him somehow so the referees were probably a little more sympathetic to the defender and there's probably three or four times you could say the ref could have called a penalty in new zealand's favor for how they tried to tackle him well, I think it's as well the less the legality, but more the practicality. Like, yeah, a coach would often tell you to try and tackle someone around the legs, right? Yep. But how do you tackle someone around the legs if their legs are the size of tree trunks? You can't. Yeah. So in a way, <laughs> what George Gregan's doing is smart, right? It's you know, if he's going to stick out his arm to fend, I'm going to grab his arm. Yep. And go down with the arm. Oh, it makes sense. 
That's number four. Number three, it's 24-0 down. 24-0. Andrew Merton's New Zealand's fly-off has, has scored, uh, yep. uh, kicked a penalty. Um, we're not here to replay the game, but it's you You got to watch this game. It's 24-0 at, at a certain point in time in the first half, in the first half of the first half. And what happened was, I think uh, they interviewed Gordon Bray and Jeremy Paul and... They interviewed them after this game because they, you know, they wanted to relive what were the best moments and whatnot. And they asked Gordon Bray, and he sort of said at that point, and he was commentating at the time. Gordon Bray, the the great Australian, uh, you know, he's the Ray Warren of rugby union commentary, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if we can use an equivalent. And Gordon Bray sort of recorded, and he said that the forwards finally got their act together, and and this was right. a twenty four zero down. And the mark of a great team, he said, is its composure. And he thought that once they had panicked a little early, they regained their composure very quickly. And you really saw that from 20 minutes um, twenty minutes onwards or 15 minutes onwards in that game was that Larkham suddenly got a bit of ball, um, yep. the great Australian flyer, and he blitzes through the defense, finds Sterling Mortlock to make it 24-7. At that time, you're just thinking, okay, this is a consolation try. But I thought it was a moment because it just showed that the first time Australia got a bit of ball that they were able to do something with it. They weren't as aggressive or as dynamic as the New Zealand team at that time yep. because they didn't have Jonah Loma. They didn't have Tana Umanga in, in the centers, but they had a team that was a team and they could work together. And I thought that, that, that was a moment in itself. Oh, it was a tremendous moment. Um, I would have it probably second in the top five. I think what it did do was it energized the crowd I mean, you have a crowd who's just seen, what, we're 24 nil down. How did this happen? They're sipping on their red wines yeah, and their cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, it's a moment actually that happened right in front of me. I was at the game with my dad. Were you at the game? Yeah, yeah, the south end of the stadium on that side of the field. You care to share this with me before? <laughs> I think I told you. Maybe I didn't. Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> How was it at that time? Do you, do oh, it was crazy. What do, you, do, you mem- do you remember that game? So I remember... I remember it combined with the next year's game, the next yes. year Bledisloe game. Right. And they've sort of, in my memory, merged into one okay. where it's hard to distinguish. But I remember moments and I remember every time Lomu got the ball, everyone would sit up or stand up straight. Yeah. He would always break the first tackle. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. And it was always exciting no matter what happened because if it was a tackle, you, all, all of a sudden you're talking about how on earth did that person tackle Jonah yeah. Lomu? Yeah. And if point. he breaks through, then you go, oh my God, he did it again. So, so it was an electric feeling when he would get the ball. But for this particular moment, yeah. Uh, so this happened at the south end of the stadium. Yep. And on the, I think the western flank of the field. And it lifted the whole crowd because everyone was excited, but we were disappointed because we were 24 nil down after, I think, 10 minutes. And this try... There was a thought that it could be a constellation, but there was a thought that, hang on, maybe we're about to see a bit of a miracle here. And as you say, it it energised the crowd. They're still 24-7 down, but there was perhaps a bit more belief now. There was hope. It was like Star Wars, you know, a new hope. <laughs> was that Star Wars? Was that the ninth or 10th oh, I don't Star know. Wars? The, yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I've lost count. Um, you can tell I'm not a big Star Wars fan. My second moment, though, we have to sort of fast forward a little bit. So we might as well, it's 24-7. Yep. We find that we get into the half, it's 24-all. Yes. Um, Australia Amazingly. Just, they're just 
applied the screws, they get, they, they basically, they started taking this test seriously. Yep. Is in another way you could put it. They said, we're going to come back. So 24 all we get in. My second moment is when Australia is 27, 24 up and it's a try by Justin Marshall. Yep. The scrum half for New Zealand. And I thought it was a magical moment. And we have to, we have to give respect here because the New Zealand team were fantastic. And Justin Marshall was a great player in yep. his own right. But he makes this run there at the sort of 22-meter line of, in Australia's yep. half. And he just makes this run where he's basically unimpeded and uses his speed. Do you know what? It was actually a carbon copy of the Larkham run, if you think about it. It was. It was at the same end of the yeah. ground, about the same amount of time into the half, and equally as pivotable as a turning point in the match. Yeah, 100%. Because... Australia's up and... Oh, yeah. We've just had a run. We've brought back a 24-0 deficit and yeah. got right back into the game. And the second half is almost... It's not a mirror image. It's a its a very different second half. Yeah, yeah. Less scoring, but, you know, both teams really applying their defensive... Um, um, or just really focusing on defense as opposed to trying to just score at every opportunity. Yeah, trying to limit the tries to rather than a try every two minutes. Let's see if we can you know, defend and only concede one every 10 or so minutes, you know? Exactly. So I had that as my number two moment. My number one moment, Buckhorn, um, you probably know what it is. Oh, it's the final try, surely. It's the final try. It's a... We're talking about a time as well where, you know, nowadays when you watch... Do you watch much rugby nowadays? I watch much less than I used to, but I still watch. I mean... I think, you know what, you are the perfect guest for this because you attended the game and you yep. attended a lot of rugby games and your your family loves rugby. Oh, yeah. So I'm, Thank I'm, you to my dad. I'm talking to, the, I'm talking to the right person. But when Lomu scores, what was great was when you watch it on TV, you see nowadays if it hits the 80 mark, the, the, the game is almost over. The yep. ref, there's no extra time or anything mm. in, in rugby nowadays. But back then, it was it might show that it was four minutes past 80 minutes yes. and there was all this concept of extra time because there's so much wasted time in rugby with the scrums and the line Very soccer and the style. Penalties. Yeah. And so when Lomu scores, I think it's two minutes past the, um, the end, the end, oh, uh, forgotten the that. end time period, but it's just a beautiful play where New Zealand basically said, look, we're down. If we're going to win this game, Let's just, rather than go for a drop kick or a penalty kick, which will make us even, let's find Lomu and give him space. And they found him, they gave him space. And it's a, probably the try that is most replayed whenever people think of this game. Yeah, it's classic Lomu, right? It gets the ball with a little bit of space and a one-on-one marking defender and just runs straight, straight around them like it's not there. I think it was Stephen Larkham, actually. He mm-hmm. was on the wing there. And he tried his heart out, like he did actually the whole game. Yeah. And he just couldn't keep up with the big man. It's, do you agree it's the number one moment? Uh, of the, yeah, I think it has to be. Have I missed any? Not any singular moments. I think you got the best ones. I mean, in a way, a moment for me was just Tane Randall breaking through about 10 oh. seconds after the kickoff. Not because it uh, was by itself a tremendous moment, mm. but... It, it set the stage for how the next 10 minutes was going to go. It was going to be line break after line break and crazy moment after crazy moment. It That's a good one. Um, as you say, it's the moment in itself in isolation is, you would say, it's not a moment. But no. when you look back in hindsight, it's a moment because it 
really reflected what this game was going to be about yep. and what that first half was going to be yep. about. Non-stop line breaks and everyone attacking all out. I should have brought your dad onto this episode because oh, he I, he'd it. probably be in tears thinking <laughs> about this game. Um, the, the, the memories of this game. Oh, it leads me to this question and I will do it. I want to do the segment, The Don. And yep. in terms of The Don, I want to focus on whether this was the greatest rugby game of all time. Now, the final score, was it 39-35? 39-35, yep. 39-35, set records at the time. I think viewership records, attendance records. Now, at the time... 109,000. 109,000, exactly. Um, Gordon Bray, when yep. he looks back, he said it was the greatest match he'd ever called. Yep. And he was calling at that time with Chris Handy and Simon Poitivan. Okay, yep. Um, I think I always, when I think of Gordon Bray, I think of... Gordon Bray and Tim Horan, yeah, um, yep. who was who was one of his uh, co-commentators. But at that time, it was Simon Woodham and Chris Handy. So he said it was the greatest game he called. John Drake, um, the late John Drake, said it was the best test I've seen and undoubtedly one of the greatest matches of all time. It somewhat leads me to the question of, was it the greatest game of all time? Now, I suppose there's a few in the mix there. Mm. And if, if I was to think of a list within a list, another list, yep. I love lists. I would say there's a there's a few in the mix. So when I was looking at some research, a lot of people have looked back at this 1973 game between uh, the New Zealand All Blacks and the Barbarians. Okay. And, they, and they say, if you were alive to see that, that it was the greatest game ever played. Now, fine. I'm going to mention it for the podcast so people don't get upset. If one day in 20 years, some rugby enthusiast of which there'll be very few who yeah. I'm imagining in 20 years listens to it and says I gave it respect well I'm giving it respect it's it's up there but I thought there's a there's a few others I wanted to put in the mix okay. and and jump in if you think I've missed any I didn't see this game but the second test between France and New Zealand in 1994 it was played at Eden Park and nowadays we know Eden Park to be the juggernaut the home where New Zealand never loses France, they score an end of the end of the earth try. It's called the end of the earth try. You should put it on oh, YouTube. I've seen that highlight. Yep. And they won that game in the the second test against New Zealand in 1994. It's a game worth watching. Yep. I've that, seen the try. Yeah. Which is a great try, actually. It, the the real French flair is yeah, showing yeah, in that yep. try. Um, a, a couple of others. So I had France 43, New Zealand 31, Twickenham 1999 where France beat New Zealand the World Cup? in the World Cup. Yeah, okay. um, That was a good game, yeah. To, to make the final. It was coming up against Jonah Lomu, and I think he scores those, that famous try against seven or eight French <laughs> defenders. You just assume New Zealand's going to win, but France turned it around. It was a David and Goliath almost match Yep, yep. Um, that they won. And then the other one I had, controversial, but I thought the France-South Africa game in this last World Cup was one of the great rugby rugby games and I have it up there now it's a quarterfinal and it'll probably be forgotten in time because it's a quarterfinal but it was a game that played in France South Africa overcame the odds they weren't the favorites for this game I had it up there am I missing any other great rugby games that you can think of I mean a personal favorite is the the World Cup game and I think it was 2011 or maybe 2015 when Japan come back and beat South Africa now, it may not be for the quality of the rugby, but just how beautiful a moment that was. And I watched that game sort of on the TV live as it was happening. It was incredible. 
and the scenes at the end were very memorable. So I love that game. I don't I'm know shocked. whether the quality... I'm shocked I've forgotten. The final, I would say the final, Eddie Jones is the coach yep. of Japan yes. at the time. Yep. And that game, if you, if you break it down, it was essentially Japan had no defense. Yeah. But they, Eddie Jones had given them five or six set plays from lineouts and from scrums that they were just scoring each time. Yeah, and they would do quick clear outs, like really quick clear out, not trying to get into a size contest. Yeah. Trying to make it about speed, I think. And as you say, they score in the final minute to win the game. Yeah, yeah. They they refused to take three points at the end. Yep. I think they they had a penalty. If they'd taken the three, it would have been a draw or a tie. Yeah, and, I can't remember now, but yeah, it sounds um, right. They would have tied the game and it would have been fine, but they say no to that. Yep. They take another line out so that they... Oh, I think they take a scrum and they score. And they start sw- they swing it out to the left. Unbelievable. Out to the wing. And, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. That's probably up there. That's um, up there. Any others? Look, this is a personal favorite. It's definitely not one of the greatest matches ever, but I loved it. Uh, there was an Australia-Samoa game where <laughs> Alisana... In Australia? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where Alisana Tuilagi uh, was playing. Sorry if I've said his name wrong. And he just smashed the Australian players just time after time. We had an Australian player on the wing who I think was making his debut. And he looked he looked how I used to look when I was playing in, you know, year eight rugby when I started. And there'd be some giant guy on the other <laughs> side looking to smash me. Is that the game Samoa won? Yeah, Samoa won that one. Yeah. And there was one moment, I think, Alessandra Tuilagi, he's run over someone and ran the length of the field. And just to rub it in, he's done a, one of his you know, classic dives they would do with the big smile on his face yeah. and slams the ball down. I loved it. I was going for Samoa that game. Is it, That's probably the last time I've seen Samoa on Australian uh, Australian soil to play a rugby game. I can't remember a recent match involving Samoa. And I suppose it's... Yeah, I don't remember one since. Probably one of the issues I have. I'm with, sure they would yeah. have had one. Well, that, yeah, and, well, that leads into it may, one of the actually, problems with yeah. rugby, isn't it? But it kind of it does. In Australia. It, it does make me sad that we don't see enough of those Pacific Island nations that have been the almost the the breeding stock for a lot of these um, great Wallaby teams, New Zealand teams. Oh yeah, and you run through the Wallabies backline in particular, and half the players have a you know a Polynesian origin exactly. of some sort. Exactly. Um, we'll get into it. So that's good. I think we can probably say this game was up there in the Don. I would, oh, this was, I'd probably put it up there as a number this one This is my game. favorite game of all time. Yeah. Um, it probably has to be. And I think if, if you said, would you remember this in 40 years? When I say, I always say, well, remember the time. Would you remember this game in 40 years time? Well, it's 2000, it's 2023 now. I still remember it vividly. I think yep. in 20 years time, I'm going to remember it. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, you've got the greatest rugby player of all time. You've got the best team at that time up against the team that would become the best team, you know, it sets the stage and it's in front of the largest crowd we'd ever had in rugby to that point. Exactly. So I think, and I'm quite jealous that you attended the game. So yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> thanks. Should have been there. Thank, thanks to your dad for that one. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. He couldn't get you a ticket. <laughs> I didn't even know you, but uh, that's, yeah, it would have been three years before I knew you. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, embrace debate buck on. Um, yep. I want to run through a couple of sort of, first take undisputed sort oh, of debate questions um, because that's what we love to talk Come about. On, we skip. Love, 
<laughs> well, he's Shannon Sharp and <laughs> Shannon Sharp's no longer on uh, That's Undisputed, true, yeah. but at one time they were all part of First Take. Yep. So um, that that is fair, but it's a couple of things because I think rugby nowadays, and we sort of touched upon it when we were first introduced this subject of rugby, but it's uh, it's struggling in Australia, Australia in particular, yeah, and. It's struggling particularly in Australia because as Australians, we love sport and yep. we love playing sport and we love different sports. And rugby probably is just struggling with the fact that it's a winter sport that is competing with the likes of the AFL. Yep. Football or soccer. Yep. And rugby league. Yep. And it's standing far behind that. So one question I had and it's a sort of an aspirational question and we're coming at it from let's we'll call ourselves fans of the fans of the game. Yep. We're not going to be able to tell you each law that a referee needs to apply when he's looking at the scrum or looking at them all. So you've got to appreciate, appreciate it with that context, which we're, with where we're viewing the game from, but it's what changes would you make to improve the game of rugby? Yeah, so look, they have made some changes that have improved things a little bit, I think. Like the quick line-out, I think, was a good idea. And um, not allowing um, kicks to go out on the full from inside the 22 if it was passed back into the 22. Um, And both those moves, I think, were designed to speed up play around the territory kicking game, realising that was a bit of a drag. I think that some of the problems they're having now is... um, you get into these kicking exchanges that feel like they go on for 10 minutes at times. Mm. And what exactly you do about that? I mean, do you make the ball uh, a bit more difficult to kick harder? You know, maybe not go back to old leather balls, but change the aerodynamics a bit. So it's the, the challenge or the, sorry, the, the payoff between playing a possession game versus a territory game starts to move back towards possession. Mm. Or do you look at rugby league success in this country and say, and this will be hard to implement, but do we just need more space in the field? You know, we had 15 players for this game designed in an era when it was amateur athletes. Mm. Now in the professional era, it's just 15 players is just too much. Is there not the space for a guy like Lomu to work and really shine? And do we actually need to say, be like rugby league and drop it to 13? I love that point. Um, and it's a good one because it's sometimes you have to appreciate context and when rules were implemented or when the game was invented. And as you say, the game was invented a long time ago. Yep. Fitness fitness levels are different. Maybe even ground sizes were different, but the game was perhaps, yeah, it was okay for 15 players to be on the field at that point. But nowadays you've got high performing athletes. They can cover the field a lot more. You've seen the invent, the, the game of sevens rugby introduced into world rugby where they still play on the same field. Being quite popular. And it's very popular. And so that that's a fair point. I I sort of approached it or I looked at it from a different perspective. And my perspective was, what do we like in rugby? We like tries. Yes. Um, and I, I would say to some extent, we like tries ahead of penalty goals or penalty 100%. kicks. 100%. And my issue is tries are given five points in rugby. Yep. And a penalty kick or a drop goal is given three points. Yes. So essentially two penalty kicks is more than one unconverted try. Yep. And I have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I think, agree. I, I think it 
um, incentivizes teams to adopt a strategy or adopt a game that is focused on not trying to reach the opposition's try line, but rather just getting into a field of space where they can kick a goal, get a penalty and kick because you will find that more more often than not, if you get into within four, within the opposition's 50 meters line, you'll be able to kick a goal. Yep. And we've seen now the fields, players are stronger, players are more athletic that uh, maybe 20 years ago, you wouldn't have thought about kicking a penalty goal when you're 50 meters out. Nowadays, you'd do it without blinking an eye. Yeah, I mean, especially in South Africa with the um, low alt, uh, what do you call oh, it? The high, the high altitude, altitude yeah. the low air pressure. I mean, the ball just flies there in particular. So I would like World Rugby to think about how perhaps it's a question of maybe it's um, reduce, maybe it's making a penalty kick two points. And look, I'm not saying that that's what they need to do because you, there'll probably be statisticians out there that say, no, you can't do that for certain reasons. But I think we need to incentivize teams scoring more tries. And they've done it to some extent where in in all tournaments, you get bonus points for scoring three or four tries. Which is an excellent idea. Which is a great idea. It incentivizes free-flowing rugby. But we've got to find a way in which two penalty kicks cannot be more than an unconverted try, in my view. That's one thing. I like the removal of the rule which permitted teams to basically run back into the 22 and kick it out of bounds. Yep. And... I think that the removal of that rule meant that you just can't you can't uh, play a defensive style of the the defensive style of rugby that basically crowds didn't want to watch. Yeah. Um, well, they still yeah. do it to be fair, but it, it, it lowered the benefits of playing that style. Yeah, exactly. Um, the problem with rugby at the moment is that different referees have different interpretations of the sport. Yes. Um, you might have a northern hemisphere referee that watches a lot of Six Nations games and watches a lot of scrums, line-outs, slow play, he, he or she might referee the game slightly differently to a referee that's born in New Zealand that sees a different yep. style of the game. And it's very hard because, of the, because the game has 500 rules yes. and, and penalties, it's very hard to legislate for that. And I think there's got to be a way in which we get more clarity as to what's a penalty, what's not, what really deserves to be a penalty? What what deserves three points, or what deserves a penalty kick as opposed to just play on? And yeah. I think rugby league's done a good job of that, where they've just said rather than stop the play and force teams to kick, they just say uh, six again. Oh, rugby league! I mean, rugby union should be looking at rugby league for tips on how to build a successful sport. You know that makes money and captures the public's attention. Yeah, because it it's. Hard for people to remember this, but 20 years ago, I think Rugby Union was actually ahead of Rugby League in this country. And it's not that way right now. There used to be in the newspaper, in the sporting sections of newspapers, when Rugby Union season was going on, there would be a section dedicated to Rugby Union. Yes. Nowadays, there's nothing. No. And it doesn't have a free-to-air deal, which that, is amazing to think about. That's for killed a sport. the sport. I mean, 20 years ago, that would have been unheard of. That, that has honestly killed the sport. Mm. Um, it's very hard to answer this question as to what changes you can make to improve the sport. Well, I thought the point you made about the penalty kicks and the field goals is an excellent one. And it's one I've been thinking about for a while. Um, really, the sign was there ever since, not long after this tremendous game that we've been talking about in 2003. Mm. I mean, Johnny Wilkinson won a World Cup on the back of a strategy of just play it through the forwards and wait for a penalty kick yeah, or kick a drop goal. And he was tremendous at it. 
But it was yeah. a sign of problems that were to come, I think, in rugby and uh, why there needed to be some rule changes. And no offence, but it's particularly prominent in the Northern Hemisphere. Yes, teams. the Northern Hemisphere. Um, probably player. nowadays you'd say with the exclusion of France and Ireland that have adopted this free-flowing free game of style of rugby that has seen a lot of benefits because they've yep. now dominated on the world stage. Yes. And it just shows that if you play sport with the right mind at the right attitude, you'll win m- m- more Aggression likely than not. Aggression gets rewarded sometimes, you know. Um, but, yeah, so, look, it's hard to suggest changes to the game of rugby. I think if we put it into perspective, we can still say rugby is a popular sport worldwide. Oh, definitely. Um, enjoyed and watched by many, but we come at it as two scorned Australian rugby fans who look back and say, what happened to the game we love and yeah. what happened to the team we love? Yes. Um, and we could probably say well, the Wallabies no longer sort of unite a nation. Um, and that goes to my last point, this last embrace debate point, which is, is rugby dead in Australia? So I don't think it's dead, but it's, you know, it's struggling to breathe. You know, it's gasping for air. There, are, There's reason for hope in some areas. I mean, rugby getting into the Olympics, the sevens, I think is a tremendous opportunity. Mm. And I would, if I was uh, the ARU, I would actually be looking at expanding the game through that arm as much as anything. But for the 15s game, which is really what we're talking about, I think they've got to consolidate and try to appeal to the fans that they've had for a while. So the ones who are a bit scorned after 20 years of failure after failure and whatnot, mm. I think got to focus on those fans. So what that means is putting out a rugby product that plays in an attacking style. It has all its games, like its Bledisloe games in, in Australia, in the main cities, mm. not sort of a Hong Kong game, Good not point. anything like this. I mean, they should not take the central fans for granted because the, the, the numbers of fans in Australia has been dwindling gradually. Mm. And it's gotten to a point now where they're financially not in a good spot. No, they're not. They're, they're, you'd almost say they're bankrupt. Yeah, they've, Rugby Australia. And they've applied for equity loans, as I understand it. And yeah, they're trying to go back. the private equity route. Yeah. It's, uh, look, now, there's reason for yeah. hope. I mean, you look at a sport like golf, golf doesn't have any popular support, but the people who like it have money. Mm. Rugby union is a little bit the same. The so people who like it have money. They got money. They're all private school boys, right? <laughs> so look, you know, you focus on that main fan base, you restore that. And the meantime, to actually grow the game and make it better, I think you have to look at the sevens arm because that appeals to the modern generation of a quick game, pretty easy to understand. Mm. And it's in the Olympics, which means people will watch it who won't ordinarily watch rugby. It's almost sevens. Sevens rugby is almost 2020 cricket. It is. Um, and you look at what 2020 yeah. cricket's done for cricket. Sevens could be the same. Yeah. Look, I have a more pessimistic view yep. of rugby. And I love and maybe, rugby. I think it's probably warranted. I mean... I like to be optimistic though. I wrote down some points and yep. my first bullet point was it's well and truly dead at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Wallabies stink. Oh, they're terrible. They, You know they stink when you expect Argentina to beat them. Yes. Yeah. I think it starts at the grassroots level and it's a point I mentioned before, which is this divide between public and private school. That's going to be done away with somehow. And anytime I talk, I mean, we went to Trinity. So in some ways we were um, exposed to rugby all the time. Yep. But when you talk to 
others um, when you go to uni and, and you're out at work and you say, oh, do you follow rugby? The first question is, you mean league? Yeah. Like it's, oh, you mean rugby league? It's not oh, rugby union. We, we would always say rugby and assume it's union, but that's not how it's viewed across no. the majority of Australia. And I think it's it's a problem because it's affected its reputation, which is that, hey, if you didn't go to a private school, you don't associate with rugby. Yeah, um, unless you're Polynesian background, maybe. Exactly, where it's very popular yep. in, in the Polynesian countries and in New Zealand. So I think there's that problem. Um, I think we know that the World Cup's being played in 2027 in Australia. Yep. We and the clearly, British and Ireland, Iron, oh, sorry. Yeah, British, British and Irish Lions yeah. tour coming Irish up. Irish Lions, there we go. Now, when I think about that, I think we had such excitement for the World Cup in 03. Yes. Which was played in Australia and it had the highest rated rugby final of all time. Did it um, really? For Australia and England. Oh, I, I think know that. on Australian shores for, oh, for okay, rugby. Yep. Uh, I don't know what it did well, but I'm assuming it did pretty well. Um, but I don't think the excitement's there. So I don't know if the Rugby 2027 World Cup is going to save rugby. Um, one of the other problems is no one attends Super Rugby anymore. No. Um, you, the, and the Super Rugby competition has changed. It almost changes every year. They, yeah. they decide, oh, we need to remove this or we need to remove a team. We need to include a team. We need to remove South Africa. Yep. We need to include Argentina. Team from Japan comes in. So when you don't have... Fiji. Exactly. And it's when, hard to follow. When you don't have consistency at the domestic club level and when the shoot shield's no longer being played and yep. they've got some different tournament, it affects the national sport. Yes. And a point that you mentioned, which I really love, is rugby has forgotten to look after its own fans and in in a bid to nationalize the sport and introduce the melbourne rebels and these introduce these teams and make it a appeal to fans that perhaps weren't fans of the sport they've forgotten about the fans that truly love the sport and it's affected it so while rugby might be growing in the northern hemisphere and it might be growing in other countries like argentina which we've seen argentina is suddenly become a you know a, a rugby nation a very powerful rugby yeah, nation they're a good team now and japan yes. is um is is slowly growing and showing that they are respected on the rugby stage we've seen australia drop and i don't know if it can be fixed i don't know if it can be fixed with money and i suppose we sound quite depressed it's <laughs> yeah. quite de- depressing to talk about this but if anything we can leave on the fact that the f- we've chosen the first rugby episode we've done is a 2000. That's Blair's the golden era. It's the golden era. I'm hoping one day we can talk about a 2027 yeah. <laughs> uh, rugby game, but we can probably leave it on that, which is it's, it's, there's a bleak outlook for rugby. It's not impossible to overcome, but it's pretty bleak. Yeah. Dark times, dark times for Australian rugby, but there's reason for hope. It's just hard to believe with the management that has been around the last decade or so that that hope's going to be realized. Very much enjoyed you ha- having you on the show. Oh, I love being here. Thank you for having me. We'll see you soon. Sounds good.